out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the would-be goods because I recently spoke to their lead singer and songwriter. It's the one and only Jessica Griffin to talk about life, love and poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Also her life in music and also to point out that uh, they have a Bandcamp page with various releases that they've done recently during lockdown, a project, and they've got a CD that's coming out as well. But that will be spoken about within this interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jessica, it's over to you. Well, I grew up in a bit of a weird household without a TV because my dad had this idea that if we had a, had a TV, we wouldn't do lots of creative things. We played instruments and drew and wrote and stuff like that. And so we didn't watch Top of the Pops unless we were around at a friend's house. I didn't really know what was going on. I can remember we had ballet lessons in the local, this hut that was the local youth centre. And I remember looking at this, this sort of list of all the records they had on the jukebox and just thinking this is like a foreign language, you know, and there were posters and it just, it was, it was just completely alien to me. Mm. And, um, and then I guess I probably got into music it was Bowie was probably the first person who really had a big impact on me yes. and that probably wasn't till till I was kind of in my kind of 14 or 15 I think right did you I mean it's kind of curious because I when I was growing up in the 70s more than though I was born in 1964 um there were quite a few at that stage there was a lot of people doing community or communes that was the term and had bought the the sort of the self-sufficiency book and the cranks cookbook and were living yeah. sort of off grid a bit you know this is the kind of 70s period because there'd been these fairs and festivals in East Anglia called the Barsham Fair and the Albion Fest there was a lot of people doing alternative things were your <clears throat> were your parents kind of taken that kind of path at all not at all no they were completely the opposite well my dad was in he was a, an officer in the royal navy and he was from a kind of public school background um and um he was a bit of an eccentric actually but i i don't know where this idea he was just he was quite a controlling person not in any kind of you know sinister way but um he was quite had quite strong ideas about how children should be brought up, I think, and was quite strong on discipline and stuff like that. And and I think it was just part of that. And my mum was much more into the, the kind of baking your own bread and making your own tofu and stuff like that. But they weren't, they, <laughs> no, they definitely weren't, they definitely weren't kind of hippies in any sense of the word. Right. They did love music. They had, I mean, we, we it was a very, very musical household and, um, you know, there was always music playing or, you know, we were practicing instruments or singing or. Yes. Well, it sounded yeah. like, yeah, from that that kind of ballet, I thought, oh, that was probably, I kind of suddenly had this narrative. Oh, right. That's interesting. I, I'm, I wondered if they were doing that kind of off grid sort of, you know, getting chickens in the garden. Did they have the doctor spot kind of how to bring up a yes. child from the late yes. right? Yeah. yeah, I remember my mum talking about Dr. Spock. Yeah, Dr. definitely. Spock. Yeah, so there yeah. was that because I was the youngest of three. So by then, I think they'd given up with sort of how to, you know, what you're supposed to do with a child. They just went, well, two, two have survived quite quite well. So we'll just go with the third and and I was the youngest. So, yeah, that was, yeah. So it was a little bit, not liberal, but... I think yeah. my poor old older brother did a lot of screaming when he was hungry and they said, no, we can't feed him because it says on chapter five, you know, let yeah. them scream. Well, that that was me. You see, I was I was the el I'm the eldest of three. So I was the one who they were really anxious about. And and so I, you know, I, I probably am a lot more uptight than my brother and sister. Yes. So, um, yes, my brother takes a lot of responsibility for everybody still. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> That's me too. <laughs> so when you, so you did, so was music then? I mean, because obviously your parents, you said your parents were into to music. Was there any particular band or artist? I mean, you mentioned David Bowie. Was there anything else that you found kind of exciting and sort of slightly, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing Blockbuster by Sweet and thinking that yeah. was 
amazing and crazy horses by the oldsmans and thinking god that was rock and roll so did you have any songs that sort of really stuck with you i mean the music i really remember is so so we lived in singapore for a few years and um i just remember my mum and dad listening to a lot of stuff like francois hardy and um uh, Sergio Mendes, Bert Bacharach, and Nancy Sinatra, Lee Hazelwood, you know, that kind of thing. I I don't really, I didn't really find out about sort of 70s, early 70s music till quite a lot later. Yes, my goodness. But, you know, cool records all the same. Did you, um, yeah, so when you got the 16, did you continue on with A-levels at that stage? I did, yes, yeah. And then was it university? And university, yeah. Yeah. I remember. I remember at that stage thinking. I remember I went to look at an art school and thinking I really wanted to go to art school, but my well, my mum particularly and my school wanted me to try for Oxford. I was at a grammar school, and they they wanted me to try as well. And I and I ended up going to Oxford and reading English. Excellent. That is fantastic. So when you got there, did did it things start to, you know, did you get sort of um, that student experience or were you still very studious at that stage? I was, I was studious. And also, I think there are a lot of people there who were very, um, well, if, if I say Boris Johnson was a contemporary of mine, that probably tells you quite a lot. I didn't know him, um, but I, I didn't, you know, people like that were just not my kind of person at all and um luckily I, I was at a college which had, it had been a women's college and there are a lot of people like me from state schools and it didn't have that kind of obnoxious brash you know um attitude yes I know so that... I was lucky to escape that but I still think I wasn't very happy there I loved I loved the academic side but not so much the social side no, I could imagine, especially the 80s and the, because, you know, 79, yeah. you know, Thatcher gets in and suddenly there's this rampant conservative party that sort of, you know, yeah. greed, kind of greed is good. And, and you know, obviously there was the sort of the Falkland War, then that kind of gave everyone that nationalistic kind of quality. And then there was smashing of the miners' strike and kind of the unions a bit as well and Green and Common. So, so yes, then you know, because and then eighty three, massive year in all our lives. The Smiths appear. Did did indie, when did you start finding you know the indie pop world of the eighties? When did that come into your? Um, club? I started probably in the in eighty one or so. I started listening to um, to the radio a lot. I listened to John Peel every night, and um, who was before him? Was it? Kid Jensen or someone like that. Yes, yeah. the the Kid Jensen, and then yeah. be, then a bit later, I think it was Janice Long, wasn't it? That's right. And I remember I remember hearing the Monochrome set for the first time and just thinking, a this doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard before, and b this is my kind of music, and just being really excited by it. And so, but there were lots of other bands who all my friends liked as well. Um, right there, you go. Teardrop explodes. Joy Division. I just listened to a lot of a lot of stuff, but you know the monochrome set particularly was the band attracted me. That's right. So we, yeah. When do you sort of find your you know your sort of love of kind of singing and 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 poetry and writing? When did this? Um, start? I'd always I'd always done that. I always sang, but I didn't sing in choirs or anything like that. I just sang all the time and wrote poems, wrote wrote stories. Um, you know, it was just something I've always done. Yes, my goodness. Because, you know, for me, you know, 83 to 87 in the years of the Smiths, it suddenly felt, you know, and that's um, probably a little bit later than you. I, that was when I sort of discovered John Peel and sort of listened to it. Because up to then, I had an older brother, as I kind of mentioned, and he he was of that generation in the 70s, a student doing accountancy, loved his prog rock. So, you know, I I sort of, and I, I thought he was wonderful. So I also loved prog rock through a lot of that period and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. So, and then, you know, our relationship got a bit weird because he, you know, he, he just didn't sort of relate to sort of indie pop and John Peel and this kind of throwaway seven-inch single. He didn't have a seven-inch single in the record collection. Uh, <laughs> Roger Dean, poser, you know, covers and all that kind of malarkey. So then, yeah, so so John Peel, I found initially like, God, that's a bit different and a bit different, mm -hmm. weird. I remember hearing I Am The Fly by Wire. I'm thinking, 
that's definitely not radio daytime radio one and and but then being kind of fascinated as well as one starts to hear different sounds so did you did you take to that kind of john peel show quite easily um no there was a lot of stuff that didn't didn't appeal to me and that i didn't understand either um yes but there was enough that did you know i can just remember sitting over there with a little um, my tape deck behind my head as i was lying in bed and just occasionally turning things on you know and um you know switching it on to capture particular things yes. sessions and so on so unlike you i've just always been a fan when did you sort of feel that kind of pull to be in you know part of a band it didn't happen like that for me at all um i so as i said i was a fan of the monochrome set and i started going to see live bands I went to see the monochrome set with some friends and I think it was at the LSE uh, maybe the first second time I'd seen them and afterwards I just decided I was going to go backstage and meet them and this is so out of character I'd never done anything like that in my life before and and it was maybe it was destiny or something I don't know <laughs> but anyway I just remember you know talking my way past the security and then going to the dressing room and waiting outside and this girl came up to me and gave me a watch and said this is Bid's watch uh can you give it to him so I had this kind of mission so <laughs> I went and gave him his watch and then um sort of someone offered me a drink and I was just there for a bit and I met this guy Mike Allway who was there um he was the A&R man for Cherry Red right and, um you know, basically we became friends and were friends for sort of quite a few years. And um, he started L Records and sent, you know, would always send me their latest releases and so on. And then I think soon after I'd left university and started working in London, he said, um, I want you to make a record for my new, for my new label. And I was surprised, but I thought, yeah, why not? Yes. He got um, Simon Turner and Colin Lloyd Tucker um, to write to write the um, to write two songs for the single. And um, and I recorded it. And yeah, it was it was really fun doing that. I remember being very nervous about doing the vocals and Simon deciding I needed to sort of drink lots of red wine, which is just the worst thing he could have done. And I couldn't do anything for the rest of the afternoon. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, and I thought, well, you know, it's just a bit of fun. That That's all it'll ever be. And then um, it, it got radio play and some good reviews. And that's and then Mike said, well, you know, you need to make an album. And wow. Yeah, that is that is boggling on so many levels, because. <laughs> I think that was two weeks ago. I, I did an interview with Colin Lloyd Tucker, so that was quite amazing. Yeah, and and yeah. I've done, you know, Simon as well, kind of yes. probably last year. Because they, at that stage, they'd done that musical project where they had decided to, they'd written some material and thought it would be better if women sung it and then thought, well, we'll just, we'll just do, we'll just pretend we're women at that. Oh, stage. that's right. Do a feel, do a feel. Yes. <laughs> so they yeah. managed to do two albums and had sort of like performed them, and still no one had realised who they really were. So it was just yeah. an, an amazing story and amazing people. That is, that is just the most amazing story I've heard of all these interviews. That, um, <laughs> that is, it does. I mean, the stars must have lined up actually for this. They must. I mean, I think Mike was someone who was he was quite eccentric is quite eccentric and I think was just he just had this idea he ran the he ran L records like a film company in a way and he he just saw people with some sort of potential I don't know what he saw in me but he he just thought well you know we'll give it a go and um I think in in trying to sort of promote it he emphasized the fact that I was you know an Oxford graduate and I'd I was now working in the city which is the strangest thing I've ever done in my life and anyway for someone who read English literature yes. it's a strange thing to do but anyway we won't go in won't go into all that but um, <laughs> um I think it was just a an unusual thing so he promoted you know used that to 
promoted. And who was your, you might have said, and I'll just slip, who was the band for that first single, Par- uh, Fruit Paradise? Was that? Um, it was, I think Simon played on it. And, right. Um, yeah, it was just a Simon plus friends, basically. Yes. So at that stage, I mean, it was a bit like that, was it film Flashdance? You know, you were sort of not quite a welder by day and a dancer by night, but obviously <laughs> had quite an interesting balance here. But yeah, because that was, you know, that was at that stage was quite something, wasn't it? The city. And we we all watched those videos of all clips of people shouting into phones. So, yeah. So at that point, did was there kind of an amazing elation for you kind of on an emotional and spiritual front thinking, I've just made a single. This is incredible. It was. And the thing is that I felt I felt at home in that in that world and doing and with those people, I felt much more comfortable and myself than than I was in my day job. Yes. I think in, in my day job, I felt like a sort of. A zebra in a herd of. Um, donkeys or something, though, no, that's that's rude, but of yes. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that I was somehow superior to them. But, no, but, but you know, yes. it, it was just, you know, I, I was I was not in the right environment. Yeah, I could have quite imagined because actually, but you know, my brother, who was that, you know, accountant, he, that would have been his, he would have loved that environment and he would have been mm-hmm. like hitting the figures and just, you know, he would have loved it. You know, he mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that, that was his home. <laughs> So it was quite interesting. Yes, it was only later on in life that he realised there's more to you know life than just you know profit margins and making money. Yeah. So that was interesting. So then with that release, didn't you you know do you is it then did Mike say look brilliant now we we'll make the album? Did it run like that? Um, pretty much. Yes, I can't remember the exact timing of it. And then for the album, I wrote the songs. Yes, so was... it was. So it was. It, it's almost as if. The would be goods would was two different things. It, when we made the first single, it was almost more like a manufactured band, and then with the album, it was you know it, the monochrome set were, were my backing band, which again yes. was another huge sort of attraction for me. Mm. And um, my sister, who was living with me at the time, co-wrote some of the lyrics on the lyrics on some of the songs. Yes. And, and did um, and did Julian Henry, did he was he also part of that? He kind of was um I think originally Mike's plan was that he would write he would write I would write some songs that he'd sung, but um I didn't feel that was working out. So he he did in the end help us to um record demos. Right. Okay. Which I've were got then you. sent to the monochrome set. So he's he has a a credit on the record for arrangements. Yes, because he he was in the hit parade and did one of the greatest singles ever called um, "See You in Havana One Day" or just "See You in Havana." Which... Yeah, he's a really good songwriter. Oh god, that song yeah. was just so beautiful. Yeah. It was one of the classics of our time. God, I've yeah. got so many beautiful memories of that. Yeah. Uh, and who produ- was it? And your producer was that Keith? West. It was Keith West, yes, from the band Tomorrow, who I think is someone that Mike really, um, you know, rated very highly. Yes. I mean, it was it was kind of 88 still. I mean, personally, I still think 87 was an amazing era of music, mm. you know, but it was still it was some sort of glorious. It was a glorious time, actually. Did you feel part of that? world i mean because it wasn't just indie pop which is obviously wonderful but there was also art cinema that we you know we were all watching betty blue and baghdad yes. cafe if it had been made by them but we were about to watch yeah. it and diva and all these films did they were they all part of your kind of world at that stage of being very sort of oh we're just all being very sophisticated um i mean i saw i saw all those films yeah i i don't have a sense of that going on at the same time but yes yes so with the with the, the songs starting with the camera the camera loves me did you were you just kind of writing these as sort of in the third person you know were these kind of ideas that you had you know while sort of thinking right I've got to write 15 songs I just wondered what your process was and and yeah. where you were I mean I think I I think I worked then probably in a similar way to how I do now I start with something that's like a sort of seed almost so it could be a title um or I mean sometimes 
one thing I did for a while was I would take intros to songs that other people had written and I would imagine the song, you know, if, if I thought the intro was better than the actual song, I would imagine how I would have continued. Yeah. Yes. On that intro, that sort of thing. Yes. Titles yes. was the way I started with titles. I think Morrissey, Morrissey probably did the same. Yeah. Did you? Um, and so when, when, would, when, you know, just kind of curious, you know, the camera loves me. Can you remember, you know, where you were when you were writing that and, and the sort of thought process? Yeah, I can. I can remember um, I was we were in this flat at the top of a house in Kensington and um, it was kind of in a very, a very nice area. But but there were holes in the roof, that kind of thing. And I can just remember this. It was very sunny. I can just remember walking around with a little like a handheld tape recorder and and I've still got cassettes that I made just singing into the cassettes and um, I've sort of kept absolutely every one um, and just having a notebook and writing stuff down and it just seemed to come quite quickly. Yes, God, that's 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 fantastic. And what about just also curious, Cecil Beaton's scrapbook? Yeah. How did that one, was that a similar way of kind of composing or was that slightly different? Um. That was different insofar as I think we didn't have enough songs. So we were in the rehearsal studios with the monochrome set. And um that had and we had to have another come up with another song very quickly. So I wrote that in, you know, basically the lunch break. Yes. And uh, <laughs> well, that's been played so many times. I was just looking at the, you know, the Spotify playlist. I mean, it was just those songs are so popular, aren't they? You know, they are the ones that everybody kind of loves. So when that came out, what did you? You hadn't got a band, so you did. Did you sort of try and tour any of the material, or did it? Was not that just... at all? I, not at all. I think um, Mike Allway was not really in favour of any of the L bands playing live and in fact there were only two events where they did there was a kind of L showcase at the um oh, what was the name of the place on Shaftesbury Avenue um anyway I forget the name but it was in yeah. an old church and um I think I think Simon Turner as the King of Luxembourg and Louis Philippe and maybe one other act did maybe Julia Gilbert as Anthony Adverse um, played some songs to this rather bemused audience and I'd just done the photo shoot for um, The Camera Loves Me. Right. Um, no, no, for for the um, first single, um, Fruit Paradise, and I was wearing this sort of yellow flamenco dress. So Simon just kind of grabbed me by the hand and dragged me on stage and said, you're doing backing vocals. I had no idea what I was doing, but uh, that was the, you know, spirit of hell, really. And yes. then there was another, there was another, um, L showcase, which was, uh, they went to Japan and um, did several concerts in Tokyo. And um, I I wasn't there as part of the tour, but I was there at the time because my job was, I was um, investing in the Japanese stock market and spent about a month every year working there. Yes. So I went along in the evenings and again, ended up doing backing vocals. Yeah, that must have been very strange, actually. It was very strange. And, and Derek Jarman filmed filmed the show. He he's a friend of Simon's, as I think you know. Yes. And um, but this this film has disappeared, apparently. It's, oh, what a shame! And did uh, because because it's interesting because Sarah Records seems to have got this kind of I know you, that's not Sarah Records, but this kind of cult following that you know, and a lot of bands and. And not a lot, but you're quite a lot of, you know, played in front of a, you know, 50, 200 people in the UK and then go to Japan and suddenly mm. they're playing in front of 3,000 people who know every lyric. Did Was was L had L got the same kind of response in Japan, like, you know, something similar to that? Yes, very much so. And I think they were quite influential on, I think, this, this whole kind of Shibuya K movement with um, Flipper's guitar and... Um, Pizzicato 5 and bands like that I think some people have said that L was the inspiration for that right my goodness so quite you, a quite... little label had quite a big influence yes and how did you cope with the kind of the the kind of the stardom shall we say the kind of you know the the attention the you know the 
yeah, just suddenly realizing. Did you ever sort of think I could I could be a pop star here? This this could yeah, be. Yeah, it. it didn't really affect me so much because you see, I never I never actually performed in Japan. I didn't do any I didn't do any live performances until about two thousand and three. Yes, when the Would Be Goods became a sort of a real band, as it were. Yeah, and then so when the album came out, and obviously not not two years on the road. What happens then? You know, because then we have the kind of the tricky period for a lot of indie bands, you know, the kind of ecstasy period. And a lot of the bands that I loved during that 80s had just kind of had enough, you know, the five year narrative. Mm. And then there was, you know, like, I suppose shoegaze and there was grunge. There was the kind of the raves seen by, you know, uh, the ecstasy world. What was it like for you? Did you did music go back into the sort of the cupboard again or did you keep writing and it, thinking did, about- it did because I got married and I got married to someone in the city and so the city was you know my world really for the next few years and then in 1992 I think Mike approached me again and said um that a, a Japanese label Trattoria um wanted me to make a record another record so I did that again with the monochrome set bid produced it this time and the monochrome set with a backing band and again i write i wrote the songs in a very short space of time and probably recorded it even in even less time and um and that came out and then i went back to my day job by then i was working in publishing right and um and then soon after that i had my daughter and then didn't really do any music for well no I did I I taught I learned how to play the guitar in sort of when my daughter was very little yes started writing songs again and then I met Peter Momchilov and we started working on the third my third album um which is Brief Lives Yes, this is this is good. Then was that was that the point where you sort of found, as we sometimes do in life, actually the direction you kind of wanted to go to in generally in life after sometimes flailing around in our late teens and twenties. I think so, but it was quite hard because my daughter was quite young, and um, then my marriage broke up, and so I was sort of effectively looking after her on my own. And I couldn't sort of just take off and tour and do stuff like that. So I had to try and fit music in around everything else that I was doing. Yes, because there's sort of the third album, Brief Lives. It's It's got a sophisticated sound to it and an amazing quality. What, what was that process like for you? Did you start, I mean, this was in 2000, wasn't it? 2000. It, was, it was a bit different this time because... Um, I suppose I was producing it myself, you know, with Peter's help. And I had I was able to bring people in, for example, Orson Presence, who was in the monochrome set. He was an amazing improviser on, you know, he brilliant keyboard player and guitarist, but we didn't use him as a guitarist on the album. Yes. And um and and I brought in other people. Um and so that was really a studio album. We weren't really a band yet, but it was. I had much. I felt I had much more control over it and the, on on the way it sounded. Yes, it was much more satisfying, really. Yeah, in some was ways that... that's my favourite of of our albums. Yeah, and did it then? Did you feel that at that stage that you know the band and and the your sort of direction in life was going to be very much part? You know, music was going to be part of that, and that. I think you know, by what, then I did. By then I did, yeah. And did your writing process change much in that state, in that time? Not really. I suppose that the main difference was that, um, so when before, when I didn't play the guitar, I had played other instruments. And when I write songs, I can hear in my head how I want them to sound. I know what the, I know what chords go with them under the melody. I, I, I can imagine arrangements quite quite vividly. So, but but in order to make actual physical demo tapes, I would have to get together with somebody who did play the guitar 
yes. and painfully go through the songs with them. And, you know, obviously sometimes it's obvious what chord you, you're playing, but sometimes I would say, no, it's not that chord. And then I would have to sort of sing the dominant notes in the chord so that I could try and explain, because I couldn't say it should be an A or something like that. I would just say it's this and we, you know, somehow we'd, we'd get there. Yes. So it's a really painful way of working. And so I I did that with Bid for the um the for Mondo. Right. But then Sorry, obviously by the time we made brief lives, I could I could make the demos myself, which made yes. a huge difference. And did and sort of getting a more of a settled lineup, did that also kind of help you feel a bit more kind of grounded in, in what you were doing? Yeah, that was by the time we made the album after that, we'd we'd actually got, we'd formed an actual band. It was um, Peter, um, Peter, me, um, Debbie Green, um, yes. drummer, and then um, Lupe Nunez Fernandez was our first bass player. And, um, and then we started playing live. Yes. And, you know, that, that made, it did make quite a difference, I think. And then he was replaced by Andy Warren. She, she, yes, yes, Lupe was. That's right. She was replaced by Andy, yeah. right? Who, who had a... been, who had been, of course, played on the first two Would Be Good's albums. Yeah. So then that was that was it. So when you were sort of that and that album, the more that was the morning after, wasn't it? You were you got right. the band. Yes, that's right. And, and how was touring for you at that stage? Um, we still didn't do a lot of touring. We just did the odd. You know the odd show, but I wasn't. I didn't know how, how I would feel about it. I always thought that I would be because I found it very nerve wracking having to do, say, when I was in the city doing presentations and so on. So I thought standing up in front of an audience is going to be unbearable. But actually, after the first few nerve wracking attempts, I really enjoyed it, and I do enjoy it. Yes. Amazing. That is good. Did you, when you were sort of, uh, you know, and still are, do you, are you sort of influenced by that much music around you that that's, that's contemporary or do you, are you listening to something that's completely different from a different time and a different genre? Yeah, I think the latter. I don't think I am influenced by music around me. I mean, I, I listen, Peter has always tended to listen to quite a lot of contemporary stuff. So I hear that when he's playing it, but um, I still tend to go back to, you know, older music. Yes, there you go, there you go. Did your um, what did your parents think as you were sort of developing your music at these kind of completely, you know, different world than than you'd originally? I think started my mum, my mum was quite excited because she had she had been a fashion journalist brief very briefly before she got married, and I think she sort of quite liked that the idea of this sort of glamorous world not that I was not that it was all that glamorous but um my dad was very anxious about it and gave me a little talk about how you had to be very wary of people in the entertainment business and he was right no <laughs> <laughs> yes I know annoyingly he was completely tried read the contract yes <laughs> yeah which I didn't <laughs> Yes, this is always true. And also the morning after, amazing. Who was the photographer? Because that's a beautiful cover, isn't it? That's Gail O'Hara, who's the, um, she's one of the people behind Chick Factor, and she's just the most superb photographer. Yes, that's incredible. So then you, so after the morning after, do you, is it the case that it just takes a while for the next kind of inspiration to come and then bring in the next album out? Not really. I think I think for a long time I just thought, um, oh, you know, it's been a while. We've been playing these songs for a while. Let's start, you know, because I'm not doing it. I'm not. I mean, yes, we had a label. Um, we were on Fortuna Pop and Matinee um, and then just Matinee. Um, but there was no pressure on us to put out a new album. So it was just when we felt like it. And, you know, Peter was in another band I think Debbie was in another, and Lupe was doing her own thing. Yes. Of course, when we had Andy, he was in the monochrome set. So they're all very busy. I'm the only one who's in one band. And um, so I think, yeah, it was just when we decided it's time for another album. But um, 
I think I then got into this long stretch where I thought I had writer's block and I, and that went on for years and years and years. And I bought hundreds and hundreds of books about how to, how to deal with writer's block and be more creative and so on. Yes. And, and then uh, during lockdown, I discovered that the secret is to just treat it as a game, really. So there's no pressure. So I came up with this idea of... Um, asking Peter to give me a title every evening. And um, I had to come up with a song, a finished song by the end of the next day. And, uh, you know, just do a rough demo of it. And um, I managed to keep that going for 172 days. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. So it was just a formula and it worked. It worked, the creative block. So did you did you suddenly find yourself with a new bookshelf that had just like things like the creative way? Is it no the artist way and all those kind of I did, I did, but I just read them. I didn't do any of the exercises. I just it was just a displacement activity. Yes. So so that none of that worked. All that worked in the end was was my treating it like a game. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you had David Bowie, you know, he did different ways of working, including the cut-up technique that he got from yes. William Burroughs. As um, Brian Eno's oblique, I suppose it might, what I was doing was an oblique strategy. Yeah. So when, so this was, because you had done an album before the lockdown, hadn't you, which which had come out, was that 2008? That's right. That was um, Eventur. That's right. And then, um, and then we were working on a new album, another album before the pandemic began. And I think we'd recorded about three songs from it, three songs. Yes. So this latest project, this was all through the lockdown, which you you sort of have this on your the Bandcamp page, which is, you know, Satan's Child from the Depths. And this is this is the collection that's going to come out as a sort of CD, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So I was I was having a listen to that today um yeah so what was it like as you, for you as an as, as as a you know person but as an artist during that kind of march 2020s when suddenly everything changed was i mean how did that affect your kind of um state really i think i think initially i was just extremely anxious and um obviously nobody knew how serious it was and how you know, what course things were going to take but at the same time, I, I loved things like, you know, the streets suddenly being quieter and, you know, you could hear birdsong, you could hear trees rustling, you know. Um, you could walk around without being the danger of being hit by a large lump of metal, you know. Yes. <laughs> right across the road. And um, and then, then I started to get bored. I'm I'm quite happy with my own company, so I didn't really miss people too much. And Peter was living with me by that stage, so you know I wasn't on my own. Um, and then um, and then I started to get a bit bored, and Peter was obviously working full time from from another room. Yes, in another room, and um, that's when I came up with the, the idea for this project. God, that's fantastic. So, it was it was really helpful actually not having a lot of social contact because it meant that I could just be totally focused. Yes, and absolutely yes, away from distractions. So out of um, on the Bandcamp page, you've got these four kind of EPs, mini albums. Which was the first one that came out? Um, from the depths. From the depths. Yeah. Yes. And, and then spring fever, and then. Um, Violet Hour and then Saturn's Child. Yes, that's right. So with band, yes, the wind, the wind will change, and Ouija board romance. It was, so again, this was kind of Peter said, "This is the title. Go and write the song." Yeah, and and even if even if it was the most unpromising title, and it didn't, I didn't feel inspired at all. I had to write the song. So, you know, some of the songs. Some of these 172 songs are completely throwaway, but I came up with quite a lot that I was really happy with. 
Yes, that's amazing. Because I did speak, and I, God, I wish I could remember now who it was, but it was one of these outsider artists. And I think he was writing, writing an album mm. a day. <laughs> so I think he just, you know, it was just like banging it out. And it was just like, you mm. know, as, as long as, as well as painting, you know, it was like one of mm. these, well, some people are very busy. Did you, I mean, I guess it was just a really good discipline as well. Did you, did you find you relaxed into it and just really looked forward to that kind of deadline? Yes, I did. I really felt, you know, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and start working. And I felt time, you know, how you, you get into a kind of flow and time just completely becomes immaterial and you just have no sense of time passing. I, I was so immersed in what I was doing that that, that 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 happened. And that's a really good feeling, I think. Yeah. Especially when you're in a situation like pandemic. Yeah, because I think... Somebody mentioned a quote from who I did an interview with recently from Picasso. That, I don't know. Things kind of happen when you're busy. You know, it's rather mm-hmm. rather than thinking up yes. space and then, you know, you just have another cup of coffee and another bit of toast and then you have a walk. And then but you never, yeah. you know, we're sometimes having that kind of, I don't know, sometimes not being able to think about it and, and just sit there but get the energy going. It, yeah, it probably does kind of help having that kind of de- deadline, actually. So, um yeah and response yes so one one of the tracks madam x so peter said this is the title because i was listening to that and the lyrics again do you did you go back and rewrite much of it or were you just really no i didn't rewrite any of the lyrics um what i did do was um some of the rough demos were pretty rough as you can imagine um because they were just done in a less than a day after i'd written the song so i did go back and re-record some of the you know quite a lot of the instruments and vocals but I didn't rewrite any of the songs yes it's interesting because I think listening to Tony Visconti talking about working with David Bowie he'd often not really have that much prepared before they went into the studio Mm. which always seemed like wow that's (laughs) that's quite something and then having to just somehow dig it up did you have you felt quite since this project have you felt like things have kind of changed for you as an artist and a singer-songwriter um, I'm not frightened about getting creatively blocked anymore. That's for sure. Yes, um, I would and I also have good. a huge sort of stash of songs that I can I can keep putting out EPs <laughs> until the cows come home. But um, and I probably will do or make another album or something. But um, uh, yeah, so it's sort of given me confidence. I think. Yes. So with the with the EPs that came out on Bandcamp, these are now being these are now going to be coming out as as a, a CD, isn't it? Yeah, I've just had them made into a CD, and it's it's sort of I've got boxes of them sitting downstairs, so I'll put them on Bandcamp probably. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And you got a live date towards the end of the year. Which we have is, this twenty um, fifth of November at 25th. Betsy Trotwood. Yes. Did you last week go and see Heavenly and? Um, we did well. Peter was playing in in yes. Heavenly, and we and there was a there was a thing called Le Salon de Heavenly in the after on Saturday afternoon, sort of between the two evening shows, and it was a sort of you know quiet session of you know um, music. And um, Peter and I played as the would be goods too, just as a duo in that. Yes, about six or seven songs, um, which is something that we've been doing quite a lot since. You know, we haven't started playing as a live band again since before the pandemic. So, yeah. Do you feel that um, kind of going forward, you know, and I sort of might have mentioned at the beginning, there's there's so much more interest now in the sort of whole 80s indie world that's been sort of happening. You know, Cherry Red Records are always bringing out these compilations mm-hmm. and they went from well, C86, they brought out a triple CD, didn't they? And then they went up to 91, then they've gone back to 85 and then, you know, heavenly reform. Do you feel like you're you're in a really good space and place now to sort of to have that kind of um yeah just in, inspiration to sort of work on quite a lot more material and sort of do more live dates? Yeah, it would be it would be nice. It's it's a reason to feel optimistic, definitely. Yes, absolutely. And if you could have whispered something to like your 16-year-old self starting out which is probably might have ignored what any anyone's advice would be. Is there anything that you would have just told them, you know, as uh, you know, told yourself, if you could have told yourself something when you were 16, is there something yeah. that you might have said? Well, it's, 
it's funny because I think what I would say to myself is what someone did actually say to me. I had this amazing woman who was like a sort of mentor, really, who was this um, incredibly tough Australian woman pilot who'd grown up on a sheep farm in the outback. And she we met her in Singapore and um, she was always really kind to me and sort of took me under her wing. And um, she said to me, you know, don't care about what other people think. Um, you know, work out what and work out what you want to do and go for that. And that's what I would say, because I think if I had listened to her, maybe I would have gone to art school instead of to Oxford. I don't know. And um, I might have got into music earlier. Yes, this is true. But anyway, that's always that's, you know, these we have these interesting journeys, aren't we? And and. Yes, that must. Were you at Oxford at the same time, like with Amelia and then Stuart Lee? Were they, or um, were they a bit later than you? A little bit later. So I think Peter had finished there just before I just before I went up, and Amelia was probably a year, a year or two after me. Right. God, that's such a great story, isn't it? This is this is. All reason for optimism, actually, as, as you know, it's just nice to think, oh, yes, all these very groovy people. Because to be honest, coming from my background, it was always so intimidating, things like Cambridge and Oxford. And you thought, you know, it was all the, yeah. you know. But for government. me, too, for me, too, because my mum and dad didn't go to university. My mum, my mum left school when she was after her O-levels. She was at a grammar school, but she let, had to leave after O-levels because the family needed her to earn, earn some money. Right. And my dad was uh, my dad went into the navy when he was sixteen, and yes. um, so yeah, I know. So, so you know, it was quite a big deal. I know we were all slightly. I think we'd seen, and, and there'd been that you know, Brideshead revisited, and then there's Tom yes. Bride's school. So that just kind of emphasised my intim, you know, feeling so intimidated by the yeah. the upper class. That was like my God. It's so really, the college I was at wasn't like that at all. You know, most of the people there were from state schools like me. Yes, that must have been quite nice, actually. Mm. Did you go when you were there? Did you go and see quite a lot of bands? Or did no, you? No, this is the funny thing. I didn't at all because I I didn't. I didn't have most of my friends there weren't really that into music and I didn't really feel like going to see bands by myself. So I kind of lost touch with you know, I just kept on. We, I listened to records and I listened to other people's records, but I stopped going to see live bands. Yes. Did you get into the people like Joni Mitchell and Carol King? Do you know, it's really funny you mention because I used to have a real down on Joni Mitchell. I thought Joni Mitchell was a hippie, and and I I couldn't listen to her. And I now absolutely worship Joni Mitchell. I really do. I I bought a box set of all her LPs and uh, about two years ago and yeah it was during during the lockdown I think and I just listened to it you know one after the other they're so brilliant yes I know it's it's lovely actually it's lovely doing it chronologically because then you mm. can see these yeah. kind of changes even the Mingus album but I find it kind mm. of interesting there's little bits of her 80s work which I've got fond memories dog eat dog but it's kind of you know Gordon Spark and the hissing of summer long Gordon and... Spark's my favorite I know god yeah Car on um, the hill she's a genius she really is and I, I I'm just in in awe Yes, I know that album brings back so many fond memories. Yeah, and um, on literature front, what was your what were your go to books, novels that you or writers that you absolutely loved and possibly still love? Um, that I loved then. Um, oh, that's really hard. Um, I read. I mean, I liked. I. I read quite a lot of um, sort of Russian writers in translation um, and who else? Um, Was it things like uh, the can the cancer ward and is it the idiot? And, yeah, um, not so. Yeah. I, I mean, things like, you know, Dostoevsky and um, Chekhov and the sort of classics and so on um, and Bulgakov. Um, but also um a lot of the virago books that were coming out then you know the sort of women's literature yes um and and i and i've sort of gone back to those recently 
And I've just finished reading a trilogy by Re Rebecca West that I think is absolutely amazing. It's um, it's known as the Aubrey trilogy, and it's got some other some other name, um, but it's it's just one of the best things I've read in years. So it was quite contemporary, right? Contemporary writers you particularly liked? Um, no, I would say I would say sort of earlier. I mean, I think that came out in the in the. And 1950s that um the Rebecca West. Oh books. right, yeah. Yeah. But um it she may she may have written it a lot earlier than that, and it just didn't get published till the mid till the mid-50s. Yes. Um, because it was, you know, there was stuff in it that you probably couldn't get published then. Yeah. It's, it's really good. I think I'm just much more interested in books about women and about women's lives than I than I was then. Yeah, well, absolutely. No, it's it's kind of, I can't, you know, I'm just kind of obsessed with, you know, because there's been quite a lot of people writing books now, he says, mm. looking about, you know, women in music and women in punk, you know, which mm. that, that story has never been told. So being a bit yeah. sort of one-dimensional, I find that's been kind of interesting, actually. I noticed that with the yeah. your new album, the, the cover has been done by your mum. That's right, yeah. she's a, She's an artist. Wow. She went to she went to art school um when she was in her 40s I think. That's amazing. That is so nice actually. So with the painting which looks like a festival, is it a festival it's scene? It's a fair, a fairground. Right. God, you must be so pleased to be able to put that as as your cover. Yeah, I I was really pleased. Lovely. Oh, this is good. Well, look, so it's available from Bandcamp, basically. It, it will be. I'll put it up in the next week, I think. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And, well, look, yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, I was only going to say, and when we do shows, I'll bring some along as well. Yes, and merchandise. Them. People love their T-shirts. So I don't know. Will you, will you be doing T-shirts or will you just keep with CDs? Some for eventual, but um, yes. I don't know maybe we will. Yeah, I know. It's tricky, isn't it? But look, thank you ever so much for this. It's been fantastic. And I'm so yeah, pleased. To, yeah. So look, all the best. And um, I've been really loving, you know, listening to your new material because um, obviously I hadn't been that aware of it. So, but yeah, thanks for sending me that link as well. And I'll put it, I'll put that link as well on, on the notes when I put this out. So that should be in the next week. So should tie in quite nicely. But look, have a lovely day or evening. Thank and you very um, much. thanks you for your too. time. This has been Thank really you. great. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. I'll try and hit the end here. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You probably guessed. Anyway, a massive thank you to Jessica Griffin for giving me the time for that interview. From the Would Be Goods, they've got a website, also the Bandcamp page. Do check them out and that live date in the autumn. In fact, I can tell you the 25th of November. You should be able to remember that. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Interviews, that is. Find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.